What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and more. Join us. Aresha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Mike Esposito from Washington University in St. Louis. Daryl Hudson, also from Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. All right, hello and welcome to another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. Despite the pivotal role of nutrition in the production of health and health inequities, we actually don't spend a great deal of time on the pod talking about nutrition or the contribution of nutrition to birth outcomes, which obviously have a lot of different variation in terms of how we think about population health and equity and all those types of factors. So today we're really fortunate to have Dr. Lisa Bodner, an expert in nutritional and perinatal epidemiology to join us today. Dr. Bodner's research goal was to identify the healthiest weight and dietary patterns that promote the health of pregnant women and their children. In addition to her outstanding contribution to these fields and the management of absolutely all of the research grants, Dr. Bodner is the host of Shiny Epi People, which is a, has a major following and highlights the humanity of epidemiologists and public health professionals. So thank you very much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time and contributions. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone for listening. Yeah. So kind of taking an attack from your, your shiny Epi yeah. people, your shiny Epi per person. And so really <laughs> excited to hear from you today. And um, first we thought we would follow up with what, what you do, which is to ask people a little bit about their origin story. Mm. So specifically like when you were like in third grade, were you thinking about, you know what, I want to be an epidemiologist when I grow up. What, what was going through little Lisa's? Daryl, I, of course I was, of course. <laughs> I, I'm sure that I knew at eight years old what an epidemiologist was. And I thought, oh, I want to, I want to really help uh, stop a pandemic. That's <laughs> what I had in my mind. When I'm 46, I, I really want to be prepared for this. No, I, I think I wanted to be a doctor and an actress at the time. Mm. So that, <laughs> that, uh, right. that fits. That fits with kind of my personality, the drama, certainly. Uh, <laughs> my mother used to call me Betty Davis when I was young. Maybe that's a reference that's, uh, that's too old, but um yeah, no, epidemiology was not on the radar. Got it. Um, so tell us a little bit about where you're from and, and how you, you know, what did you end up doing to push you in this particular direction? Yeah, so um, I grew up in Pittsburgh, which is where I am now at the University of Pittsburgh. And I came back here because my family is here. And I, once I, when I was having children, wanted to come back and be near home. Um, which is something that at some point we could potentially talk about just the idea of it's okay to choose a job based on um, where you will be happiest, not necessarily what is the most prestigious, where everyone else wants you to get a job, but what's good for you. So it, that was a hard thing for me to decide to do is that I really wanted to come back home. Um, and uh, what else did you ask me, Daryl? 
how, how do I you got here? Shift? Yeah. yeah. How do you where you're at? <laughs> um, so when I was young, my grandmother had a heart attack. She survived a heart attack and our family decided that we needed to start eating healthy. And mm. I told my grandmother at the time that she could always come to my house and eat potato chips when I got older. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't, she didn't have to, you know, eat all of these fruits and vegetables when she came to my house. And then slowly over time, actually, I started to really get interested in nutrition. My two oldest sisters actually majored in nutrition in college, and I decided to do the same thing. Um, I had no idea that I would be doing something like epidemiology. I thought it was actually going to study nutrition, be a nutritionist, help people in populations improve their diets, and then realize that I did not like telling people what to eat because very few people like to be told what to eat. I don't know if, if you know that from your own experience. People don't like to be told what to eat. And I took an epidemiology class and thought, this is incredibly cool that I can actually combine my substantive interest in nutrition with a methodologic interest in epidemiology. And, and I loved that I could combine kind of math and analytic thinking with this uh, interest I had in, in healthy diets. So that's how I ended up in nutrition, nutritional epi. And I was kind of always interested in maternal and child health. Um, I found a wonderful faculty member when I was about a junior in college and I wanted to do some research. I sought her out and she was studying pregnancy and nutrition and she brought me on to do some, uh, you know, some work for her research study and I kind of fell in love with it and we decided that we would kind of stay together during my PhD and I would continue to work with her. So um, it's just been the most glorious ride. I love my job. I, I can't imagine doing anything else. That's good. Yeah. Also, I hope your grandma uh, was able to eat some potato chips. With you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny, right? <laughs> Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your career in maternal child health and nutritional epi, like what sort of projects you've been working on, like what sort of drove your interests and like the burning questions you have. And then I have a hard one that question for you that students have asked me and I don't have a great response. Okay. Um, I may not either. Okay. So they, and they, this has come up every year that I've taught uh, of the three years I've taught. Um, <laughs> But they, okay, so the, like, there's a lot happening in like the body positivity movement and, you know, uh, embracing all sorts of body types and even like the fat movement, right? Like just embracing, like people just out there and being like, I'm fat, like, this is great. And so how do you approach the issue of studying things like obesity mm. or weight gain or BMI um, with all of that happening, especially in like, for me, I do this a lot, right? I study adiposity and weight hip and all of that, but uh, particularly in like communities of color where there's mm. a lot of critique around BMI metrics, um, but also this pushback on weight as a marker of individual health, right? And like pushing back on doctors' offices weighing people. So I guess, we're, how about we do that? Let's tackle that question because I'd really like to dig in. Uh, yeah. Can I put in a plug for needing an answer to that too, right? Like every, I get students that ask and I'm like, yeah, I and I know. have like an answer, but they're like always very unsatisfied. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you have really thoughtful students. Um, I don't know that I have a great answer for that either, but what I would say is that I, so I wrote a, 
a commentary to a paper that was published in the British Journal of, oh, I don't know if it was OBGYN, um, a couple of years ago that was in response to a postpartum weight loss intervention that was published. And one of the comments that I made was, do we need to be focused on weight loss when mm. we're working with postpartum people um, and trying to improve their health? And uh, could we talk about diet and healthy lifestyle and mental health and things that we know drive behaviors um, and, you know, childcare and things that it, we yeah. know interfere mm -hmm. with a healthy diet, um, especially postpartum. I mean, that's a hellish time. <laughs> I, I did it three times. I'm not quite sure how I made it through, but, um, but I think that what, where nutrition and obesity, I think is headed, um, is to, to, to remove the focus on the individual. This is someone's fault mm -hmm. that they have a weight that we quote, you know, we quote unquote deem to be unhealthy and trying to make sure that we can change environment so that people have the access to and capability of getting healthy foods and they can learn how to prepare foods and they have more, um, you know, the, the, the places where they're able to get these foods are convenient and that they, uh, you know, cost a reasonable amount of money so that people can actually purchase them. So kind of making these environmental changes and allowing that, um, setting up the environment so that people can make healthy choices and, you know, recognizing that weight, I mean, weight's easy to measure. That's why we study it because it's easy. <laughs> so, you know, it's way hard to study diet. It's way hard to measure it. It takes a long time. It's not perfect measure. Like weight is an objective measure. I, I think that that's largely why we study it. Um, and so I think that there are, uh, there, I, I would say that I think that there is a movement towards pushing back against this idea of let's just focus on weight and BMI and, you know, obesity and labeling people, you know, as obese. Um, yeah. I think that it's, it's getting a little better slowly, but surely. Yeah. It's a, it's a like across the field in kind of nutritional kind of studies and epi, or is it just like, there's like kind of pockets of people leading the way and everyone else is like, no, just let me like model my continuous measure <laughs> that, I can, <laughs> that I can get easily, right? Yeah, I mean, and and this is kind of maybe what we'll get into later, but there is this um, tension between what is the best science and what we are capable of doing given both the confines of, you know, research in general, mm -hmm. but also, you know, the the drive to publish and the drive to um, become, you know, get funded, stay funded. And yeah. so, yeah, there's absolutely, you know, people are going to continue to use BMI. I use BMI still, mm -hmm. um, but trying to do it in a thoughtful way that acknowledges its limitations and tries to frame arguments in a way that um, is respectful of people and their individual choices mm -hmm. um, and their own preferences and not, you know, this like, um, you know, you need to, you need to stop eating all of this junk food, but saying, you know, 
how do we allow people to make those choices if that is the choice that they want to make? Yeah. And did you want to know about other research stuff? So I'm yeah. actually really, so I have a couple of grants right now that mm -hmm. most of my work is focused on. And so um, one is related to weight gain during pregnancy. So mm -hmm. just talking about weight. Um, there's a lot of controversy regarding how much weight is optimal for pregnant people to gain during their pregnancy. Weight gain for almost all people is essential in order to develop fetal and maternal tissues. And um, but too much increases the risk of maternal obesity and child obesity unplanned C-sections, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, but too little is also associated with a number of other adverse outcomes for the child, preterm birth, infant death. And so it's a hard thing to study because you have to find kind of this happy medium of really what's the sweet spot of weight gain that is going to kind of balance the risks for both the mom or the pregnant person and the child. Um, and so it's involving, it, it's um, a lot of interesting methodologic stuff that we've been exploring um, and trying to make that process more objective as opposed to, you know, kind of eyeballing curves and making guesses, which is how the current recommendations yeah, kind of yeah. were made. Um, I was, I, I was on the Institute of Medicine panel that developed those most recent guidelines. And if anyone listening has um, an opportunity to be on a panel where you are watching guidelines being made or you're part of the process, I did a lot of just listening <laughs> because I was a very baby epidemiologist at the time. But sitting and listening to see how people who are making policy use data it is, it transformed how I do my research now. And so it was really great for me to see, oh, these are the knowledge gaps. These are the gaps that are missing, but what else about this process that maybe other people aren't thinking so much about yeah. that we can change from a bigger picture to say, actually the way that we were doing that, we could really do it differently and come up with guidelines mm -hmm. that could be more evidence-based than mm -hmm. what we're doing right now. So being part of that committee was, was really pushed me in that direction of, of studying pregnancy weight gain. Mm -hmm. And then the other project that I'm working on is um, a study using machine learning methods. Um, so I don't know people call them artificial intelligence or um, so these methods that are taking, we're trying to examine how diet patterns are related to pregnancy outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, what is, what is, there are many challenging things about studying diet, but one of them that we're trying to address here is that diet is this really complicated exposure and it's multi-dimensional and we know that there are interactions with foods that we eat and people have tried to kind of reduce it down to scores and there there's much more nuance in diet and so we're trying to use these this methodology that kind of can explore some of that synergy that can account for that synergy when we're looking at outcomes so um so that's also exciting me because it's directly related to the dietary guidelines for Americans. That's really helpful. Um, I wish that more people spoke candidly about these yeah. struggles and the evolution that happens there. Um, and speaking of, um, so you mentioned the, the developmental stage of where people are at. And so for many people, 
getting external funding is mm-hmm. top of the, the mind and the top priority, the, the thing that will get them over whatever level or step they're, they're hoping to go to next. And we've noticed that you've had quite a bit of funding over your career. You've had a really great track record. And we were wondering if, um, you know, you have any sort of general advice, any top level advice that you would give to people who don't have that, who haven't stepped on like the conveyor belt that is you <laughs> of cranking out different, mm-hmm. different products. But what type of advice would you offer to folks? So I have a, a lot of thoughts about this. Um, I want to say first that uh, when you say you've had a lot of funding, it reminds me um, this past year, someone at Pitt from the School of Medicine reached out and said, we want to do a panel to talk about getting your first R01. We do be on it. We want to, we're, we're finding um, a, a very senior person with an outstanding NIH track record to speak. We were inviting, you know, someone with a strong but still early track record and someone who's new, you know, would you be on the panel? And I said, yes. And who is the person that has the strong track record? Who did you invite? And they were like, no, that's you. <laughs> I was like, I, wait, really? Like, but I, I, I mean, I've, I've gotten along, but I don't see myself as this powerhouse researcher. Mm. And so, you know, that is the imposter syndrome coming out that I'll tell you that, you know, I, I, even at this stage in my career, I still doubt myself um, and kind of uh, minimize some of the accomplishments that, that I've had. Um, Okay. So grant writing. So I teach a course in grant writing to PhD students. And there are a lot of good um, high level things that no matter what your topic area is really, um, I think could be relevant. So the first is finding a mentor to help you. Um, Mm -hmm. This process of writing a large grant, um, we'll talk about writing like an R01 level grant, an investigator um, initiated grant is a very hard one and it is very different from writing a manuscript. And so, you need to have people who are helping to guide you in this process. Um, then that person should also help you come up with a topic that is relevant to what that agency cares about. And in particular, not just, you know, well, NIH wants to reduce diabetes incidence. Okay. But focusing on finding a project that you actually think the results of your study will have an impact such that it will change policy or change clinical care guidelines, or it will lead directly to an intervention. Hmm. So we can all do research for the sake of research, right? There are an infinite number of knowledge gaps that you could fill with your work on a topic that NIH cares about. But what I have found is the the key to success, if you can call what I've done success, that, and watching many other friends who have, have amazing track records, is to really focus on, you know, for instance, this work that I did with the diet, with the diet grant, it's all really about informing dietary guidelines. It's not just, you know, let's come up with an idea of a diet that's healthiest for pregnant women, but how is this going to change guidance? Guidance is what then goes out into the world and, you know, that will change population health, not just me writing a few papers and putting them in journals. Um, 
the same thing with the weight gain work. We framed the, the grant purely around the Institute of Medicine guidelines. There are these guidelines that exist. Here are all the problems with the guidelines. Yeah. Our work is going to lead to better guidelines. So that to me is critical for coming up with an idea. Um, working with a clinician, if you are not a clinician or healthcare provider yourself, so you actually know what people care about and say, you know, I am always struggling to figure out an answer to this question. That's the type of stuff that we should be studying. Um, it directly relates to who takes care of our population. Mm -hmm. um, a big thing is to study other grants like yeah. what you want to write. And when I say that, I don't mean read a lot of grants. I actually mean study grants, which mm -hmm. is so the difference to me is reading a grant with the intention of trying to understand the structure, what, uh, what, is, what is repeated through the grant, how, how the sentence, sentences are structured, um, how aims are written, um, because grant writing is so totally different from manuscript writing. When you're writing a grant, it has to be um, you have to, you have to be preparing to, to write something that someone who's going to, someone is going to read it, who is probably not an expert mm -hmm. in your field. So you have to write it in a way that allows that person to follow your logic, right? To understand why this is an important problem, not just assume that they know, I mean, what pregnancy weight gain is like, well, why do women have to gain weight in the first place? Like, maybe they don't even know that. So to, to really think higher level. Also, grant writing is short sentences to the point, very clear writing where you don't want the reviewer to make any, you don't want them to draw their own conclusions. You want to tell them all the things you want them to believe by the time they're done with the grant. So it's writing work, you know, sentences like this work is innovative because our work is significant because, you know, they're looking for those key words because they got to fill out that review form. So tell them what they should write on that sheet. You know, if you're showing preliminary data, these preliminary data are important because they illustrate that this is feasible, you know, the, I don't know, whatever else, like right. give them those words. Um, a few other really important things. Start the sucker way in advance, way, way, way in advance, many more months before you think you actually need to do it. Um, have, get it done early so many people can read it. People do not like this advice. They get very upset that they want to do things last minute. I promise that when you have people look at your grant who understand grant writing, it will save you an entire cycle of review at the NIH. Um, white space is so important. People love to cram stuff in and all the details. And I can promise you that as a reviewer, when I look at a page that is full of text, I turn the page and I just see all this text. I just, oh, like I want to <laughs> poke my eyes out. Like, do I really have to read this? But if I can see a graph and headings and white space, then that isn't overwhelming to me. And that extra detail that people always insist on putting in is never worth it. It's hmm. always better to leave things out like that. 
Um, and, you know, and you work with your mentor to figure out what's most important to include and what are the details that need to come out. And editing and editing and editing times 10,000. Your aims are, I'm, I'm still editing my aims up until the day before I'm, you know, going to submit it. And not because I save it to the end, but just because it's got to be perfect. There is nothing in the grant that, that um, is more important than your aims page. Does that help? That was a lot. Yeah. I'm sweating a little bit just thinking about it, but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, it's like, it's such good, realistic, like helpful feedback. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I was sitting here as you were thinking about the thing, I was like, okay, well, like, what is my policy contribution? Like, mm -hmm. what is it? You know, like I was sitting here thinking about that. And also I was part of a team that just put in a grant and did not follow some of these tips. <laughs> well, I should, I, I want to be clear that, and I say this to my students in the grant writing class, like you're going to read tons and tons of grants that did not follow these guidelines and got funded, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah. I've seen disaster grants that, you know, <laughs> written in terms of great project, but just yeah. so poorly written that got funded. So this doesn't mean that not yeah. following these rules will not grant you success and following them will be, but these, I think, give you the best chance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are super awful. Those are very spot on, I think. Um, I'll just save this and just replay it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually have a, I have a, I have a tutorial that I did on this, so I can yeah. dig it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah that'd be helpful. Um, relatedly, you know, your grants boss, your podcast boss, which we'll talk about in a second, but can you share your insight, words of wisdom about project management? Um, mm -hmm. We were talking about this in a previous podcast. Like, this is something you do not get taught as a PhD. Mm -hmm. Like, you do not get taught budgets, managing staff, multiple deadlines. Like, how have you learned to manage these multiple big projects, um, leading a team? Because you know, when you're leveling up like this, you cannot do all of the work. So you have to lean on other right. people, you know? Yeah. So first of all, totally agree. We don't learn it. Um, I think that when you're a PhD student watching your mentor do this and watching other people do it is important. You're just taking in a lot of things through osmosis and seeing what works, what could work for you. I will say that I've learned things by making a lot, a lot of mistakes, screwing up budgets. Wow. Like, guess I'm not going to have that money that I was planning to because I messed up the budget. Um, you know, I've, <laughs> I have managed staff poorly. I'm embarrassed to think about some of the things that I have said to staff, um, ways that I've handled conflict that were so um, avoidant and we're not good for anyone. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that are like, oh yeah, I've, I, I've seen that happen, but you know, we, we're not, I'm not, I wasn't an MBA, you know, I, I don't have an MBA, so I don't know how to do all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you that I have intentionally limited my research program to something that is very, very manageable to me. So I am not someone who wants to have four R01s, uh, you know, five staff working under me, 10 students, three postdocs. There are plenty of people that have amazing research teams like that. And I do not want that. And I couldn't manage it. It's not my, it's not my strength. So what I have done is I've said, okay, what 
you know, I, I can manage two R01s at the same time. That's going to give me enough funding to keep me, you know, at the level that my university needs me to be at. And I'm also going to be able to have two staff at most that work for me, data manager, data analyst. I only take on students when I really think that it's a good match. I've made plenty of mistakes there too. Um, and I... I, I, I mean, I struggle with this as much as anybody does. Mm -hmm. It's, um, and, and that's why I've just said, I don't, I can't handle a big shop like that. I don't want to, I don't want to have to learn all of those skills. You know, I've, I've learned what I can to be successful right now. And I really like where I am right now. It's good enough for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Can you, and thinking more about that, right, like, and it kind of building out things that are real manageable for you, because I think like that and, you know, some of the earlier stuff that you said about choosing a place that's just like good for you in mm -hmm. general, right, like, that's the idea of like choosing things that are good for you is very strange for academia, but like <laughs> in that, right, like, how do you uh, kind of like go about kind of choosing and building out your collaborator network too, right, yeah. because that's such an important kind of part of it, and I have made mistakes there mm, often sure we all have we <laughs> yeah, absolutely exactly. all have yeah so mm -hmm. what's the secret sauce to mm. figuring that out i mean i i don't have the secret but i'll <laughs> tell you that what has worked for me is um is going to this is so trite going to meetings trying to talk to people um i think that the stronger your own research is the more credible you are when you mm -hmm. go up to someone and say, I'm really interested in your work. Do you think mm -hmm. we could talk about it? Um, and especially when you're more junior offering something so that you're not just there to take, take, take from a collaborator, but that you also bring something to the table. Um, I try, I always vet someone before I ask them to directly collaborate, like on something big, like a grant. So I ask all the people I know who I think might know that person. Do you know, you know, Sam and how he works? Ha, you know, have you heard anything about him? Mm -hmm. What is his style like? You know, and then I think about my own style and would that work together? Um, then when I reach out to someone, I try to limit the collaboration just to one paper. At mm -hmm. first, just, you know, I'm writing this paper already. Would you read it? Would you give me comments on it? Could I put you as, you know, an, a co-author on this manuscript? If you can, you know, give us, I love your feedback. Mm -hmm. Then if that goes well, then you can increase it to, to something bigger to do an MPI, you know, grant after you've mm -hmm. worked together a little bit and you're like, all right, we, we jive like our, our values match. Did I just say jive? Like, um, <laughs> you know, our, our, our values. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, you leave it in, whatever. Um, uh, so, you know, I've learned what my work style is. I know that I like people who keep their promises, who um, have an understanding that I have a life outside of work. Mm -hmm. And that if my kids are sick or whatever, I'm not up for meeting, that that's okay. And that I do the same with them. Um, mm -hmm. I want to work with someone who values quality in our work, but who also respects balance in their own life. And so kind of 
shares those values with me. And ultimately, like the beauty of this, this work that we're doing and the field that we're in and being academics is that you can work with whoever you want and study mm -hmm. whatever you want. So as long as you can keep yourself funded. So I, I have viewed this as like, I want to be friends with whoever this is. Mm -hmm. I want to have fun with them. I want to laugh with them. I want to be myself with them. And I want to be vulnerable with them and say like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. Like, I need your help here. I'm feeling like out of my league, like what should we do? So those are things that matter to me when mm -hmm. I'm trying to find a collaborator. Those are good tips, yeah. Also, I have fun with you guys as co-hosts, so I think that's like, we're doing one, you know, check on one thing, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, which is so hard, especially as a junior person, because like, I think when I started out, um, I was just like, you want to collaborate with me? Sure. Yes. It. Like, oh, and then it just, you know, it sort of evolves and you have to sort of reflect on like, why am I saying yes to everybody? And why right. am I doing public work, you know? Yeah, so. and sometimes you know, I would, in the beginning I did that too. And I'd say, well, I'm writing a paper with Dr. Blah, blah, blah. And they would look at me like, really? <laughs> okay, <laughs> you're gonna dive into that water? Like, good luck. And I'm like, oh my God, why didn't I ask someone in advance? So <laughs> yeah, find out about people's reputations beforehand. Oh yeah. Um, so to get a little meta, uh, you also host a podcast, um, Chinese Epi, um, and we were just talking about it with uh, the other folks who host the other SCR podcast. What is it mm -hmm. called? called? Serious um, Epi or, yeah. or Epi Counts? Okay, there are two of them. Mm -hmm. um, who just had like great things to say. So tell oh, us so a kind. little bit about how you got started on your podcast you have like a particular bent and brand, like how you yeah. want, why you wanted to do it in that way. Um, and sort of how it sort of, has it helped your career? Do, mm -hmm. like, do you think it's sort of um, shaped the way you think about the work now? Yeah. Yeah, I love talking about the podcast. You'll have to like tell me to shut up at some point. Um, so, so I started the podcast because I was lonely as hell during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought about doing a podcast prior to that, but I was sad and disconnected and um, I wanted to find excuses to talk to my friends in the field. And so at first I thought, well, I'm just going to put this out and I'm just, I'm going to talk to my friends and whatever people will, if they like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. And it started to catch on. And I realized then that this was an opportunity that I had a responsibility in putting this together. Um, and it wasn't just for me anymore, which is in the beginning, I really felt like, you know, this, I was doing this for very selfish reasons because it was, you know, I was learning. I mean, as you all know, like the pod being able to, you know, start to finish putting a podcast together is so much work mm -hmm. and such a huge learning curve. Um, and so it was exciting to learn something new and to just, you know, it, it, I was allowed to be creative in a different way than I do at work. Like I, it was exciting to me. So I started the show because I felt like there are, there is not enough kindness in our world. There is not enough empathy in our world. This was right after the George Floyd murder when there was so much discontent and I felt like if there's anything I can do to put some joy into the world, that would be one tiny way of being able to give back. And so 
So I thought, I think what we really need right now is to humanize people that work in our field, to show them as relatable human beings that they are. It was like, the more I talked to different epidemiologists, the more it's like, everyone is the same. We're all insecure. We've all made mistakes. We all have felt bad about who we are. Um, and we've all felt great about who we are. And boy, wouldn't it be nice to share those things so that people know that they're not alone. Um, and that we aren't afraid of people that are senior in our field. And that, you know, now you know that Ken Rothman screwed up the first talk he ever gave. Like, boy, that really humanizes that now you know that the father, father of modern epidemiology, you know, was just like you when he started out. Um, and so in talking to people, so I, I encourage people to just tell me what about their story they, they think that they would like to share something usually kind of vulnerable, something that they normally would not share on um, in a professional setting. And so people come on and they talk about lots of barriers they faced and struggles that they've had and many triumphs that they've experienced as a result or things that they've learned. And then for the last 10 minutes, we are very, very silly. And we, I ask them goofy, silly questions. What kind of sandwich would you be if you were a sandwich? I mean, silly things. And I asked them to tell stories about, you know, growing up and, um, you know, not about how they got to their careers, but like, you know, did your brother wrestle you? You know, like, did, did your siblings hate you? Like, you know, what, what was your life like? Um, and so it really caught on and there's a lot of laughter and a lot of vulnerability and empathy. And what I found is that the listeners just appreciate feeling the humanity of others mm -hmm. and under learning what it's like to be someone that isn't them. Um, and a, a priority of mine is to make sure that I am including guests from a wide range of backgrounds, from career stages to race and ethnicities, religions, abilities, sexual and gender identities, just as, as much as I can pull in, I am trying hard to, to pull people in so that we can hear other people's stories and say like, gosh, I had no idea that your yeah. experience in academia or whatever was so hard. And like, I'm gonna remember that the next time I interact with someone that might have your experience too. So mm -hmm. it it is a way that I have felt, this might sound cheesy, but, or cringy or, I think cringy is not even a cool word to use anymore. I think it's chuggy. So it, it, this might sound, um, you might roll your eyes at this, but I feel like I can make more of an impact on the field with my podcast than I can with my research. Mm -hmm. That I am better at this than I am at doing epidemiology. And that that work mm -hmm. excites me. I'm thrilled about it. I can make an impact there. But the reach that I can have with this show and the community building that I can have with this show is it is it like, you know, makes my heart for four sizes bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's 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 wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> much for much more noble reasons for why I got into doing this podcast <laughs> <laughs> kind of for sure. No, that that's absolutely tremendous. <laughs>
you but know like, you don't um, need a noble reason to podcast also, yeah. you know? <laughs> everyone yeah yeah i don't yeah. know if all podcast hosts have noble reason i don't yeah. think sure. so and like i said i did not start out with a noble reason i was like i want to talk to my friends yeah. and people can listen and who cares so yeah it yeah yeah it didn't start that way well i think like on to kind of continue on with that a little bit like how do you you know, so like, I mean, like sitting here and it's like, man, this seems like a fantastic life. Um, and you are doing kind of this real public kind of facing work without compromising on the research quality yeah. still and kind of choosing kind of like, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah it's, it looks like it's staying good. Mm -hmm. um, and then also kind of like seeming like you've struck this like really nice work mm -hmm. uh, life balance. And so like for folks kind of starting out or kind of like early career scholars, mm -hmm. like how, how do we do that? Can you, can you give us yeah. some advice on how to get to that point? So, um, like I said before, I've made a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, I also want to be clear that what you see on the outside of me, of anyone, is not really what's happening within them, right? So even now, I struggle just as much with balance um, I mean, maybe not just as much, but there are still moments when I struggle with this and mm -hmm. I wonder what my place is in this field and if, you know, I'm really making a difference. So that I, I don't um, want to come off as like, I've got all of this figured out, but I have a good bit where I've tinkered enough so that the mistakes that I, I've learned from those mistakes. So mm -hmm. I think the most important thing is to know what your priorities are. Yeah. Because your priorities could be very different than mine. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not gonna tell you what, how you should work and what you should do. If you don't want to achieve X, maybe you wanna achieve Y instead. So being able to, to outline what those priorities are and they can be work-related, but I think they also, also need to be outside of work so that you can figure out like, you know, is it that I, I want a podcast 20 hours a week and how am I going to fit that in with the work that I do? And what kind of career do I want to have? Do I want to have that big empire? Do I want to work at a teaching institution where I mostly teach? Do I want to work out there in the field in public health? Like, figuring that out and that's hard to figure out and some of that just you know that it, it evolves so when you prioritize one of the things that i said so have you guys ever read um stephen covey's book the seven habits of highly successful people yeah okay so i thought that that book was like the biggest eye roll ever and yet <laughs> i have taken so much from that now that i've taken a step back so one of the things that stephen covey says is begin with the end in mind. And I say this to as many people as I can, that if your goal is to get tenure, let's say, then what is it gonna take to get tenure? Then work backwards. So if you need to graduate a PhD student, have an R01 grant and have a certain number of publications. Did you hear that? I hope you didn't, did you? Do I need okay. to say that again? I'm sorry, that's my youngest. I'm just gonna yeah. toss the phone over there. <laughs> She's with her dad today. She shouldn't need me right now. Um, so if you need a certain number of publications, whatever it is, work backwards and say, okay, for an R01, I need preliminary data. How am I going to get preliminary data? Maybe I need a small grant. What am I going to do? How am I going to get that small grant? So when I say how prioritization links into here is that you can do so much, but what should you do? Yeah. is different from what you can do. Mm -hmm. 
And like early career, I just remember feeling like I'm a kid in a candy shop. I got all this data, could write all these papers. I got a hundred ideas. And it was like, no, but I could write all those papers, but I shouldn't write a lot of those papers. I need to write the papers that are going to lead to the, that are going to get me the preliminary data that lead to the R01 that is going to get me tenure. Right. So when you're a PhD student, it's the same thing. Your goal is to graduate. <laughs> How do you get to graduating? Maybe that means saying no to a bunch of other projects that people want to involve you in. Maybe it doesn't mean saying no to that if your goal is to get to a place where that is really important. So you know, if you want to go into a teaching institution, you know, do do more teaching when you're doing your PhD. Someone else might not think that that's a priority. So really trying to understand what's the end, work backwards, how are you going to get there? Mm -hmm. The other big thing that I always talk about is saying no. Yeah. People mm -hmm. have a very hard time saying no. No is a complete sentence. We do not need to provide excuses for when we want to say no to things. It's hard to say no because we feel like we're going to be missing out on, I'm sorry, <laughs> my daughter continues to, <laughs> she's telling me, I got, the, right? I, yeah, I got the percussion part in, in band. She's very excited. <laughs> um, uh, so um it's hard no. to yeah it's hard to say no because you don't know if this is the last time that you're ever going to be right. asked to do this or if this is going to lead to that next thing that's going to launch you into whatever successful thing you want to do and so that's why i talk about having a group of people a no committee that yeah. are the mentors the peers the people that know you well that go to them and ask them I was given this opportunity to speak at this seminar at whatever university. Don't know if I should say yes. What do you think? So first of all, never tell anyone yes until you've had 48 hours to think about it. I don't care if you know for sure you want to do it. <laughs> take a pause, take a beat. So then you go to your people. What should I do? And so when people ask me, what should I do? I ask them because I don't have the answer. I don't know their career. I, I don't know what you want. I know what I, my, I know me, you do you, but I'm going to ask you things for you to think about. So I ask people, what is doing that going to bring you? What does it gain? What do you gain from doing that seminar? Is it you're going to meet collaborators? Is it that it's something you can put on your CV and that you need to show a reputation that you have, that you're an expert in this area? Um, is it going to help you write a paper that you want to write? Um, do you have the talk done anyway? And you can just roll it out and it wouldn't be that hard. Um, and if not, like this is a great opportunity to invite someone else to do this talk for you, someone who isn't gonna have the visibility that you already have. And so, so asking yourself those questions is gonna help you decide if you should say yes to something or not, but ask other people, they've already made all the mistakes. I mean, you're still going to make tons of your own, but at least people love to try to help you prevent you from making these other mistakes too. So take advantage of that. I'm sorry. I've talked so much. I get oh, all worked up. <laughs> no, no, this is great. Um, well, we know we can talk to you a lot more, uh, <laughs> but first we want to say thank you for saying yes. Um, yes. Obviously could have said I did, no. I did not need to, no. to consult my no committee. This was a yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> we really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate hearing all the wonderful advice that you shared with us today. And so we we greatly appreciate not just your your contributions to the the field, but your podcast and promoting people, um, sharing the human side to people, the vulnerability that you discussed. You're like. I wrote down here as you were talking, you're like the Brene Brown of theology. <laughs> you can no, totally that's do that. Very, very kind, but very, very untrue. But I, I mean, certainly I read Brene Brown and I listen to Brene Brown, but um, yeah, just trying to be human. That's it. Yeah. Just authentic. Just bring your authentic self. It, it was such a pleasure to meet the three of you. And um, I never would have done this if it wasn't for meeting the three of you. This is the best part of this for me. So. Well, we really appreciate it. And uh, we're always grateful to our grateful listeners uh, for joining us today. So we'll see you next time at Sick Individual Sick Populations.